This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. School choice has rebounded since the pandemic. Many parents are reassessing the quality of their local neighborhood school and are wondering whether they should consider one of the many school choice options available. Education savings accounts are popular in many state legislatures and school vouchers and tax credit scholarships have uh, rebounded. But what about charter schools, the largest of all the school choice programs? Are they continuing to expand or have they fallen out of political favor? To discuss the future of charter schools, I am fortunate to have with me today Nina Reese, the president of the National Alliance of Public Charter Schools. Her organization provides the most up-to-date information we have on what's happening and what should happen in the charter school world. And they are deeply involved in the legislative uh, business of trying to persuade the, the national government to become involved in charters. And I am very grateful for all the fine work that Nina has done. So thank you, Nina, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, Nina, uh, when the pandemic broke, uh, the estimated number of students enrolled in charter schools was, I think, about 6% of all public school enrollments. So what's happened since? Now, with the pandemic, um, lots of things changed. So what's the story with charters exactly over the last few years? Well, um, as you know, Paul, uh, the percentage of students who enrolled in charter schools increased dramatically during the pandemic. We saw a surge of 240,000 students in the first year of the pandemic. That number stayed roughly the same in the second year, and we are about to release uh, the third installment in the next week or two, uh, and we're pretty, you know, the numbers, you, you'll see it, you'll see them soon, but it appears um, like most of the students who transferred stayed in those schools and or if they left the system, they ended up enrolling in a different charter school. So the overall number is still uh, fairly high and we have um, great confidence in both the demand for charter schools uh, and the need to create them in those places that allow for them to exist. Well, I know you make a big effort to get accurate information on the state of charter school enrollments. Uh, but your figures are not official. The official data comes out of the U.S. Department of Education. Now, what do they report? Well, they're always a year or so behind, and uh, th their numbers are the same as ours. I mean, what we do is we survey the field first, then we rely on state-reported data, uh, and that's the information that we usually release, which is why we wait so long before producing results and then and CES comes out. So right now, uh, you know, we have, you know, close to 3.8 million students in charter schools. We have close to 8,000 charter schools around the country. Uh, but more importantly, and this is the story that uh, is not being told as consistently is the number of state legislatures that did something to benefit charter schools in the past year, starting with Governor Huckabee from Arkansas, who made a whole slew of changes to her education laws, including uh, allowing for a charter school to open in any part of Arkansas. It will be really interesting to see how many people open a school and what happens in a state like that, where she just lifted the cap and is now allowing for charters to grow anywhere in the state. Uh, there were states uh, like West Virginia, uh, Idaho, Wyoming, 
Uh, these states made improvements to their laws. Iowa, so these are smaller states that, were, that are not often talked about, but they have uh, made changes to their law. We passed a, a two laws actually in Montana this past year, a state that didn't have a law before. So we're now at 46 states with charter school laws. So the untold story of 2023 may simply be the, the number of improvements that were made to charter school laws around the country. Of course, ESA, that story gets more attention because ESAs are a new thing. Uh, but at the same time, our sector has benefited tremendously from the demand for charter schools, for demand for choices, but also um, the interest by legislators from all parts of the country in doing something to benefit public education uh, around the nation. So, well, thank you for listing some of those states where, where that's that's happened. I noticed that they were mainly red states or, you know, states that uh, really are a little bit more Republican than Democratic. So why are we seeing so little progress in the blue states? Well, it's important to note that in the blue states, like let's say New York, for instance, Governor Hochul was interested in lifting the cap on charter schools in New York. Her legislature couldn't deliver the votes, but she was still able to make some changes to allow for those uh, charters that had lapsed in New York City to transfer the building and the charter to a new school that's opening. So she was able to make some incremental changes in New York. In California, there was a bill that, that would have dramatically impacted uh, a, a, a state statute impacting access uh, for charter schools to access facilities, it was on the table and uh, um, Governor Newsom vetoed it. So the fact that he is now tilting more to, toward the center, it could be that he's planning to run for president one day, but the fact that he was able to veto it is a great sign that even in a blue state like California, although California is probably more of a purple state since it's such a large state with you know different pockets that are either deep red or deep blue. Uh, but anyway, in that state, he was, you know, he, he, he was bold enough to be able to veto something like that. So you're not seeing the offensive line in these states come through the way they used to back back when we had different leaders at the helm and different legislatures actually at the helm. Uh, but you still are seeing the defense working quite well. Um, and certainly, some of the setbacks we saw, say, five years ago in a state like California are not quite there anymore. So uh, the uh, Credo, uh, this um, uh, research organization out of Stanford University, has done a study of charter school performance, and they've done several over the years. And not too long ago, they released uh, the, their latest one. So what's your assessment? I mean, they try to really see whether or not charter schools are doing as well as the nearby public schools, are students in the charter schools doing better or, or not as well as the students in that they really have as their option, what they could have gone to instead. So so what do you how do you interpret their results? Well, uh, they're great. I mean, if you recall the first time Mackie Raymond at Credo produced results, they were not that optimistic about the potential of charter schools. The second time they made some improvement. The third round of studies that she released, which were all results pre-pandemic, demonstrates that the longer these leaders stayed in their schools, the better they did by the students they were serving. She calls charter schooling one of the best and most, you know, valuable stories in public education. Um, so, she, you know, it, you know, again, pre-pandemic, the evidence that she puts forth 
should give every state legislature confidence that by investing in high quality charter schools uh, and laws that create quality charter schools, you will be able to, ha to have an impact on closing the achievement gap. So this is tremendous um, news coming out of uh, Stanford's credo. And again, it's one of the things that we use consistently when we're making the case for charter schools. Well, our program here at Harvard is uh, about to release its own study of charter schools. We're going to uh, compare the performance of charter schools in states across the country. We're going to release that in a couple of weeks. We're not in a situation where we can sort of uh, tell you what states are where at this point in time. But uh, and I know you've seen some of this data behind the scenes, but without naming states or naming places, uh, what do you think of this idea of uh, looking at the uh, National Assessment of Education Progress data to see uh, how best, uh, you know, what it looks like from that perspective? What does that data tell us about how, how well charter schools are doing in different parts of the country? Well, Paul, the, 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 the nation's report card is the gold standard. Um, when I was at the U.S. Department of Education back in 2004, it was the first year that the NAEP had done an analysis of charter schools, and there was a lot of news around it because the performance was not where it needed to be. So any attempt at looking at the data over time, slicing and dicing the data by state and, and disaggregating the data is useful information. And I'm uh, grateful to your organization for investing time in studying it. Uh, and hopefully this information will also give um, state legislatures and lawmakers the tools they need to create uh, high quality laws that lead to the creation of the types of schools that produce greater outcomes on the NAEP and other uh, other uh, metrics. With that said, you know, NAEP, you know, one student takes the entire NAEP, you know the story. I mean, so it's, it's you know, it's one analysis and it should be used as part of you know, all the different assessments that schools offer in order to determine what works and what doesn't. And so if your intent, if our intent is to learn about what charters are doing well and how to scale the programs that are effective, both at raising student achievement and also being innovative, then we need to look at NAEP and all the other data sets that are out there to make that determination. Well, one of the recent, most recent uh, studies that just uh, came out is the one by the Mathematica uh, research group, which uh, took a careful look at the KIPP charter schools. And they found that uh, the students who went to KIPP charter schools, both in middle and high school, actually had a great chance of doing well in college. Uh, what do you think are the secrets of the KIPP school success? Um, well, I mean, first and foremost, as Credo's report demonstrates, leadership matters to the extent KIPP has been around for a long time, is learning from its mistake, adjusting to the changing needs of its community. That certainly is going to play a role in the performance of the schools. They're focused on making sure students graduate with the skills they need to enter the workforce or go to college. You can't underestimate the importance of telling kids early on that they can go to college and that they will go to college. Every KIPP school I attend has banners and flags of all the schools that they hope these students will eventually attend. Uh, so that sense of purpose and achievement and a sense of drive towards going to those schools definitely matters. The other thing that KIPP and a lot of schools like KIPP do is 
help those students in the journey to apply, to get scholarships, and to go to school with other peers and try to find the right fit for those students so that they end up actually graduating from college. So I'm not surprised that Mathematica has found the results that they have found, and uh, hopefully we can uh, replicate that in more schools and give you know charter schools the resources they need in order to follow their students to and through college. So how about the Biden administration? It's been difficult for me to get a read on them. Are they are they against charter schools? Are they is there a low priority in the administration? Uh, what's what's your assessment of their stance? I mean, when you go back and look at the Obama administration, uh, a lot of steps were taken within the Obama administration that 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 gave some support, maybe not massive public support, but background support. There were a lot of moves that were made by that administration that facilitated the growth of charter schools during that period. So, and Biden was the vice president at the time. We often think of this as the the Obama Biden era. So, what is uh, you know? But we haven't seen quite the same thing with the Biden administration. So, what's your assessment? Well, it's important to note that the dynamics around which President Obama became president are very different than the dynamics around which President Biden became president. President Biden came to the presidency during during a pandemic, uh, and after a lot of turmoil within the public school sector, uh, and and so in that sense, you know, it's important to kind of level set. It anyone in his role would have probably taken a lot of the measures he took and we're very grateful to the administration for allowing all the COVID relief funds that it started with two installments from the Trump administration and the third one came from the Biden administration. These funds reached charter schools as well as other public schools. As you know, they're all about to dry up next year and there's a lot of discussion about how well they were spent. We have a study funded by the US Department of Education that looks at how charter schools spent that money, which uh, we're gonna release pretty soon. Um, but so in terms of aggregate numbers, they increased the overall funding of public education. With that said though, he, he you know, his track record on education, there's really no track record. He was not on the relevant committees when he was um, in the Senate, for instance, he did vote for the reauthorization of, well, he voted for No Child Left Behind and a lot of the laws, he was a centrist Democrat. And his state, as you know, has a lot of charter schools. Uh, his, his, his senators are big supporters of charter schools. But the fact of the matter is he's, he's not talking about charter schools the way President Obama was certainly talking about it. And his secretary, who was a, an authorizer in Connecticut, is also not as involved in charter schools. But with that said, uh, we've had a lot of discussions with the administration. Uh, the secretary recently visited a charter school in San Antonio, and we hope that uh, we can continue the discussions and make sure more important than anything else that we're bringing uh, the stories of what charters have done or the statistics and evidence of the success of charter schools in order for them to inform some of their other decisions around how to reform public education. I think the issue, Paul, really is that they're not talking about education reform the way that previous presidents talked about it. And that's more of the issue because charters were lumped with the broader discussions around standards-based accountability. And that discussion is no longer taking place. The focus is more around other issues such as trauma, such as you know, uh, socio-emotional learning and 
you know, making sure teachers, uh, we have enough teachers in, in classrooms that we are reducing, you know, student absences and things of that nature, which are very different than the issues that President Obama certainly faced when he became president. Well, you know, the, the uh, civil rights community was once divided into many multiple competing organizations. Uh, but over time, they sort of created a unifying the national, I don't know what they call themselves, but there's a an alliance of all civil rights groups that really look at all civil rights legislation that comes down the pike or all the issues that come down the pike and they come up with a more or less common agreement on that. And, and that contrasts quite a bit with what's happened to the over the years with the school choice groups, which seem to be they don't they're not criticizing one another, but you you see lots of different groups are all focusing on one or another dimension of the school choice picture. But is there a is there an opening here for the creation of a broad alliance? Could you get an alliance of all school choice groups and to unify the school choice movement? Do you see any virtue in that? Well, your question about civil rights groups, you know, they, they have always been interested in the, the, the reason there was an alignment, certainly when I was involved in these efforts under President Bush was because there was an interest in raising standards, closing the achievement gap, raising teacher quality, organizations like the Education Trust were driving those uh, agenda items and they were connected to organizations on the right, like Fordham back, back when I was at the Heritage Foundation. So there was an alignment around raising standards and accountability systems and then letting, leaving choice um, as an escape valve of some sort. If those things were not happening, then parents would have other options. So as I was saying earlier, because those are no, no longer discussions that we're having uh, at the national level, certainly, or even at the state level in many places, um, this question of charters and choice in and of themselves is potentially not something that some of these organizations are don't want to start the conversation with. So that's a different discussion about the choice movement writ large and the connections between the different flavors of choice that I think you're alluding to. Uh, at the end of the day, though, in every community that um, where parents are seeking options, you know, they want to send their kids to better schools, regardless of whether it's public, private, magnet, parochial. Uh, so I do think the messages we got from the pandemic, which are also coming through in the form of all these parents who are seeking homeschooling options and micro schools, Laura Meckler at the Washington Post had a great piece in the Post yesterday on this very topic. You're noticing a lot of families actively searching for other options and that opens the door for uh the choice community to meet the the, the the demand in some fashion and if we don't do that these families are certainly walking with their feet and creating new things on their own and in those states where there is funding available to subsidize these efforts uh, they're certainly benefiting from from those measures but i think it opens the door for us to have more serious conversations about how, how to meet the needs of families uh, in real time in a way that both uh, serves their students, but also acknowledges the importance of taxpayers and the accountability that comes with public funds subsidizing these efforts.
Well, so charter schools today are, say, 7% or something in that range in terms of the percentage of students. Uh, but in some places, they're like uh, 50%, like Washington, D.C., or in New Orleans. Uh, Arizona's choice sector is growing very rapidly. Uh, so is there a point where the value of more choice really isn't there? Is there an upper limit? Should we have a sort of a goal that we're not going to expand the choice sector any beyond a certain point? Or do you see choice as there's no limit to it? Well, I think it depends on the community. If the public school system is meeting the needs of the community and parents don't want other options, then obviously that wouldn't be a place where we would encourage the creation of additional charter schools. Uh, but at the same time, I think you should always be open to new options in some places. Parents may not realize what they're missing. Um, so I think it, it depends on the community and the quality and the menu of options available. Right here in Washington, D.C., where close to 50% of students are in charter schools, um, we have kind of hit a plateau of some sort. But I would argue that most of the charters are in really two um, jurisdictions, Ward 7 and 8, and the rest of the city could benefit from having more options. Um, so it, it, I think it's a highly local question. Um, and, you know, Arizona has the luxury, I think one in five kids are in charter schools. So from a political standpoint, because so many families are sending their kids to charter schools and you have charter schools in so many different jurisdictions, it is actually politically very hard to make a case against charter schools or attempts attempt to reduce their reach because families know what they're like. A lot of legislators are sending their kids to charter schools. So that dynamic helps from a political standpoint and ultimately uh, leads to um, hopefully higher quality public and charter schools. Well, uh, I think charter schools find it easier to expand where there's a a need for more schools in general. The population is growing and enrollments are increasing across the board. And the question is, how can we build new schools quickly? Then like in Nevada or Arizona, maybe other places in the West, you're, you're seeing this dynamic. Uh, but in, in other parts of the country, you're, you're getting shrinking enrollments, you know, fewer students, um, population is declining. Um, and I think in the country as a whole, we're going to be facing a period of time where there are fewer students and there's going to be more of a competition for <laughs> the schools are, are going to find it more difficult to fill their seats. So does that mean that it's going to be a increasingly challenging environment for is, is demography against the charter school movement is what I'm saying. Well, yes. So to the extent most of our schools and footprint is in inner cities and people are leaving those cities or having fewer children, that's going to have an impact on education in general and charter schools. Um, so this is why these efforts by legislatures to allow for the creation of charter schools in uh, suburban and rural areas is so important and where the needs to have models that uh, can be replicated in these other communities comes comes to, to play a role. And so I think this is an exciting time for the charter sector to look at these opportunities and not see them necessarily as challenges. Um, Paul, can I just mention one quick bit of good news at the federal level? 
Yes, you should. Yes. So, um, you know, in the midst of all the chaos in Washington with the speaker's race and, you know, the, the war going on right now in the Middle East, I think it's worth noting just last week we had a piece of legislation dropped uh, introduced by eight members, bipartisan from the Senate, Senator Cornyn, Senator Bennett, Senator Booker, Senator Cassidy, Senator Scott. So these are all well-known quantities to your listeners. Um, so this legislation allows for federal funds to encourage individuals who want to apply to open a charter school with the resources they need to do so, because most of the money right now goes to those who have already gotten their application approved and authorized. And there is really from a, the philanthropy is not necessarily going and trying to find individuals and giving them the resources to apply for a charter, which, as you know, is a pretty laborious process. So the fact that we were able to get these members from both sides of the aisle to endorse this, a new piece of legislation is, a, is good news to us. And the fact that we were able to get people from uh, you know, states red and blue uh, to be on the bill is shows you that people are still interested in coming together in service to innovation and choice at the federal level. So, so long as that's happening, I'm not as worried about um, other factors, in, you know, in our political system. Well, that is good news. There, uh, a bipartisan venture in this space is to be welcome. Is it possible that uh, people are recognizing that in the past, a lot of the entrepreneurs who started up the charter schools were from very advantaged backgrounds, as you might expect, because it takes a lot of talent to put together a proposal and to convince an authorizer, even though the authorizer is going to be approving a program in a neighborhood that's going to be serving a needy population, the leadership is probably going to be uh, not representative of that community. Is the idea behind this legislation to sort of encourage entrepreneurs from uh, the minority community to uh, to be active in, in this space? Oh, definitely. Educators, teachers, individuals who normally wouldn't have access to the networks uh, that usually are involved in our discussions are encouraged to apply. And that's one of the reasons these members came together to support um, these, they're called pre-planning grants. Uh, and so we're excited to see who applies and to see if we can diversify the pool of individuals who are starting the process of applying. Um, uh, and, and it's great to have federal funding in this in this regard. Again, for the federal government doesn't discriminate so long as, you know, the funds are available to states. States get to decide who gets the funds, but it's a good way to inject some innovation and new approaches to uh, who who can get a charter. Well, will this replace the sort of declining support that I tend to perceive out there uh, from the foundation world? Has the foundation world lost a little of its enthusiasm for charters? Um, you know, there used to be some very large foundations that gave a lot of money to charter schools. The Broad Foundation is a good example. Uh, the Gates Foundation is another one, and they're no longer investing in this space. They Their attention has uh, shifted to other areas. Um, is, is this, how serious is the challenge of the declining uh, interests in some parts of the foundation world in, in the charter school innovation? Well, as you know, foundations change their minds and, you know, they regard 
we're focused on our space, but in other sectors, you can never rely on one funder and one foundation staying with you in perpetuity. Uh, so you always have to be thinking about refreshing what you do and and making the case for support. Uh, in our case, though, we're grateful that Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg and his foundation, they are newcomers to this. I mean, they have always funded charter schools, but they have increased their support for charter schools uh, across the country. So at the same time that some foundations have stepped aside or reduced their funding, we now have a new funder in Bloomberg. Um, but the thing I like about the federal government, as I noted earlier, is that, you know, so long as the application is strong, some of the uh, biases, so to speak, are not quite as pronounced at the federal level. So a state like Alaska, if it submits a good application, has as good of a chance of getting funding as a state like New York. So in that respect, I like the federal government and the kind of from an equity standpoint, I'm excited about this program, especially at a time where the overall number of new applications for these charter schools had plateaued before the pandemic. And so in order to jumpstart that, I do think funding and incentivizing individuals to apply is one of the steps to take. One, not the only step, but I think it's an important first step. Well, uh, Nina, it's been great chatting with you. Uh, one sad note is that you have announced that you will be leaving the National Alliance, your leadership role at the National Alliance uh, for Public uh, public Charter Schools. So um, hmm, why are you stepping down when this is a very exciting time? Well, thank you, Paul. I mean, I've been here for 11 years and um, as anyone in leadership can attest you start to question uh, after being in a role for 10 years if you have another 10 year in you uh, and in my case I, I have another 10 year in this work but I wasn't sure if uh, just doing charter school work was where I needed to be so I wanted to try something a little different and hopefully I will decide on that next step pretty soon uh, but as you know, I, I met you in the late 90s, and I've been doing this work in the choice space uh, since the 90s. And uh, I'm, I'm likely to continue being involved in some way, shape, or form in the broader discussions around parental choice and innovation. And we'll continue to support charter schools, of course, but hopefully in a role that is uh, a little bit more expansive or includes other things beyond just charter schools. Well, thank you very much uh, for all of the work that you've done, uh, both before and especially at the National Alliance uh, for Public Charter Schools. Uh, it's uh, clearly part of the story for uh, the charter school success over the past decade. And uh, it's great talking with you uh, again today. So thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you so much, Paul. I've been speaking with Nina Reese president of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon Eastern time on the Education Next website when we release a new podcast.